online broadcast. I'm Carice Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with some of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of online fraud until I ended up on the Secret Service's most wanted list, spent some time in prison, and since that point I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against the people like I used to be. Today we're going to talk about fraud tactics that literally didn't exist until a few years ago. Mobile fraud. We'll go over how phone porting is being used more frequently than ever, mobile emulators, mobile app fraud. But before we kick off the What the Fraud segment, I thought it was worth mentioning that LexisNexis recently announced their true cost of fraud study. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that study, I think it's really important because it helps communicate You can use this information in so many different ways, but I know I've used it several times to communicate to online merchants the true cost of what happens when fraud becomes a chargeback or just fraud in general. And this year, the study said that for every $1 in fraud, it costs online and mobile companies $2.94. Basically, they take the fact that you know if you're being issued a chargeback, you are out the product or service that was paid for fraudulently. You are out the money, the amount of the transaction, because you're reimbursing the cardholder. So that's almost two times, I mean, depending on your profit margin. And then you have all of the cost of fighting fraud from your fraud case management system to your staffing to all of that. And LexisNexis really does a great job of adding all of that up and averaging it out. It's definitely going to be higher for some companies and lower for others, but it's a good baseline and it's great information to communicate to your senior leadership especially when you're looking at dollars saved for your company. It's one thing to say, hey, we stopped $100,000 worth of fraud. It's another to say that had we not stopped that, that would have been $294,000 to our business. And, you know, also worth noting, they actually dove down even more into various different segments of merchants. And two things that stood out to me was that Physical goods merchants, that number is actually closer to $2.78. But if you're a digital goods merchant, the multiplier is $3.29. It's high. They also looked at the total fraud costs that merchants are spending on both preventing fraud and then also the write-offs and and the cost of the fraud that's missed. And they average around 2% of revenue for companies over $50 million in size annually. Definitely worth looking at that study to, you know, see what the average is for your business to, you know, calculate how much it's costing you and then comparing it to that study. I think it's really helpful to have studies and information from service providers in the industry because they can help you benchmark and also help you communicate 
things that need to be improved upon and things you're doing well by comparing your company to those statistics. And we'll actually share another fraud survey that or study that just came out recently. I've really noticed that a lot of the annual surveys are coming out right now. So it's definitely something to look at. And I personally use cardnotpresent.com as a resource for getting the information on when new studies come out because they have a newsletter twice weekly. And honestly, because I've worked with them for four years and I trust them so much and have worked with the editor-in-chief for a very long time and know that he does a great job of selecting the right news that help people and provides it in bite-sized articles so they're not too long. So switching gears, it's time for What the Fraud, where Brett and I take turns sharing current fraud trends that Brett's seeing discussed on the dark web, or I share trends that online merchants are reporting to or asking me about. Today, Brett literally looked up threads in a private dark web forum to share something he's seeing discussed, like right now, on the dark web forums. That's right. And what I've seen discussed are email addresses. So let, let's explain a bit about uh, why an email address is important to a fraudster. And, and the reason is, is that say the guy is using stolen credit card information or he's committing payment processor fraud or something like that. In order to really protect himself from potentially being arrested and, and to know if the order is going through or the payment's being processed or anything else, he needs an email address that he can that he can access and keep track of things. So it's extremely important for a fraudster to have that. When you're looking at the types of email addresses, the most of uh, the most sought after are aged domains, and you can actually buy these aged domains. You know, they're they're off the shelf. There's some some company that used to have a website, and they they went belly up or what have you, and now that domain is out there. So you know, you can buy a domain that's potentially ten years old that looks like it's been in business that long, and fraudsters use that so that any type of email verification services that a company might employ that hopefully it passes those services. That's usually the top tier thing that a fraudster looks for. The second is an EDU domain like a university or something like that. And the reason is, is that it, it's, it's a barrier that a customer has to cross over in order to get access to that type of email. In order to have that email address, they have to be a student. They have to do something to get that email address. Then finally, there are there are free domains like Gmail, Yahoo, Hotmail, things like that. What's happening is, is fraudsters, like I, I think I've said this before a few times, fraudsters are very good about keeping up to date on the anti-fraud techniques that are out there. So over the past year or so, we've seen that fraudsters are talking about these email verification companies. They're, they're talking about, okay, they gauge, you know, they, they can tell if the email is newly created or if the domain is off the shelf or, or something like that. So what they're starting to do, and that was what they were talking about today, is in order to circumvent that, they're just using the real email address. So they're hmm. buying credit card information or bank account information or something like that, and they're not even worrying about trying to access the email. They're just using that real email address that's on there, and they're either depending on the actual cardholder to not notice the verification email that comes through, or they're flooding that cardholder's actual email account with thousands upon thousands of spam emails hoping that the verification email gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, if the true cardholder sees that there was an order, they might, I mean, they may think it's a phishing scam or may not check it or, you know, it might go to junk mail, but they might inquire about that. And then right. if it's a physical goods product, it, it may not get shipped. Right. And, and and what they're doing is they're just flooding the hell out of the wow. cardholder's email and hoping everything gets lost in the shuffle. What that does is, and what they were talking about, is that makes sure that if, if a company is employing some sort of email verification service, that it's null and void at that point. 
because the, the email they're using is the actual account holder's email address. So then it becomes kind of useless at that point. Now, I'm fortunate enough, I've worked with a couple of these email verification services, and there are other things they do other than just that. we won't that, talk about on the that podcast. we will not talk about, right. <laughs> but uh, it, they're, they're actually pretty good about, about intercepting or, or recognizing fraud when it happens. The whole point is, is that, again, fraudsters are always up to date on the most common type of anti-fraud techniques that are out there. So they're, they're, they're reading white papers, they're reading terms of service, they're, they're studying uh, security companies to see what that security company offers and maybe even trying to gain access to that security company to test their, their setups against the type of security that's being offered to merchants. Well, and that's the cat and mouse game that we've, you know, I've seen for years is that merchants answer a problem well maybe not merchants but the community the anti-fraud community with the help of some really stellar service providers will respond to techniques to better catch fraudsters and then fraudsters will then respond and and find a workaround and the reason we try not to give so many specifics especially about anti-fraud technology and why we're pretty high level about prevention tactics, I mean, we definitely provide them, but we don't go into too many detail, is because this is a public forum. And merchants have very few advantages, and we don't want to, you know, ruin those and, uh, you know, have you lose those advantages. So there are certain things that we have made an agreement with each other, just not to go into too much detail about or not share, just because we want to, you know, help companies we're not trying to make it harder for you or trying to make it easier for you (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i would say that really that email spoofing is going completely to what we've talked about before which is their 100 percent biggest goal is to try to look legitimate and what better way to look legitimate than to use the true cardholder's email address right and it it Um, circumvents the security that's that's meant to identify spoofing or, or anything like that Well, right. And I was going to ask you, and maybe you mentioned it a little bit, but how are they getting the true cardholder's email address? Is that like in the, I know there's databases on the dark web that people have, you know, is that part of the foals that they're collecting from various breaches and matching them up to each person? Or are they looking them up on social media and hoping that their email address is listed? Or how are they doing that? It could be anything at all. So say you're buying credit card information. Initially, some of the credit card data that you purchase comes with the email address attached, and that data typically is fished data, all right? But uh, say you say you buy someone's credit card details that it, it doesn't come with the email address. So where can you get that? Well, there's this little website called LinkedIn that, uh, <laughs> that is great for looking up people's email addresses. All right, that you can use that. You can use. There are services like uh, these these background check services. Ben Verified is one that uh, fraudsters typically use. And that's one that I show in, in a lot of presentations that show email addresses as well. There's just tons upon tons of places that you can find someone's mm-hmm. email address. You can you can Google it for God's sake. Right. You, can, uh, you can actually put their name in and their address and see if an email address pops up. And oftentimes it does. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there's all types of techniques. It's, the thing is, is that. I've been really big this year in presentations talking about how cybercrime isn't rocket science, how how hmm. most cyber criminals are not computer geniuses. They're, they're just very good social engineers. Now, you have those geniuses out there that are able to break into basically any system they want to, but most of the time, 
cybercrime is a social engineer attack. It's it's phishing. It's it's manipulating someone's uh, perception of reality. It's it's just manipulating the person into giving data up that they usually wouldn't give up. That's basically the basis of most cybercrime. Or just uh, like doing random easy lookups on Google, right? Absolutely. Or social media. I mean, shoot. I did that, you know, looking up my friend's ex-boyfriend last night because I'm, <laughs> I'm traveling and so you're stalking somebody, an old friend. <laughs> little, little harmless Facebook stalking never hurt anyone. We we're just curious what he's up to these days. You know, it may have been one in the morning after a few glasses of wine, but I mean, <laughs> you know, we do it all the time. It's not. I mean, back to your point, and not you know to make it self-deprecate too much, but. <laughs> You're right. It's not rocket science. And I think that's a really good point because a lot of times I think we give these people too much credit. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, that, that's the thing. We have this perception that hackers, if you want to call them that, or cyber criminals or, or whatever you want to call the people who are breaking the law online. We have this perception that they are these these loners that are highly skilled, that are literally able to just break into any system they want to. But you look at you look at some of these major crimes that, that's being discussed in the media now, like the, the hacking of the election. How did that happen? It happened through a phishing attack. Mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not a complicated crime. What it is, it's a social engineering attack that tricks someone into thinking that the email is legitimate. And once that's mm -hmm. done, then they have access to the system. So it's, it's not, and those are, make no mistake, the, the, the Russian hackers that did that, they are highly skilled individuals. Well, they, and I mean, looking at one of them, it was simply an email saying that there was a security breach and it. asking them to verify <laughs> their information. Right. And I know this is very public information, so I'll name him. I know John Podesta. And if you're in the U.S., you probably recognize that name. If you're not, you're like, who is that? But he was on Hillary Clinton's campaign. He took it to his ID department and they were like, yeah, it looks good. Click exactly. on it, refresh, exactly. you know. It, go ahead, you're good like, to go. Yeah, they, they said there was a security breach, just refresh it. And then he, by doing that, installed malware on his system and gave access to all of his emails. Right. And that was a big deal for our country and, and still is. And, you know, we try not to talk about politics, but that <laughs> is related in the fact that it really came, you're right, it came down to social engineering and, you know, strategic spear phishing. It, and it wasn't, I mean, yes, they're highly skilled, but... It wasn't overcomplicated. It wasn't like a, you know, systemic hack or anything like that. It was due to human error, something that, you know, even I could possibly fall for. You know, like it's... Yeah, anyone can. I mean, so, yeah. so the recent studies show that, you know, for a spear phishing attack, the success rate is over 86%. Wow. 86% success rate. You're talking about a bunch of Russian hackers who are these highly skilled people who can break into systems if they want to. But what you've got is, is the same type of cybercrime toolbox that I'm talking about. Yeah, you've got he's, he's got those skills in the box, but he has no need to use those when he can simply launch a phishing email. Right. It's much quicker. He doesn't have to put the time and effort into it, and he gets success from that. Right. Well, and sometimes they even go... I thought it was kind of funny to hear from the FBI once that some of the phishing attacks are like letters from HR to make it look like it's from HR that you've had a claim filed against Absolutely. you. Click here and, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> don't we all want to find out what somebody's saying about us to HR? Oh, absolutely. And I Fortunately, was talking... you and I work for ourselves, so we are our own HR department. Exactly. <laughs> I was at a conference in, um, I was out in the middle of Lake Erie last week. Oh, yeah. And a uh, conference in Putten Bay, Ohio, and I was talking to some people there, and they were talking about some of the, the fishing training that they give people. And, 
you know, the, they they would <laughs> they were doing like a USB drops, so they would drop a USB drive in a in a parking lot and and see who picked it up and installed it, and that was approaching almost a hundred percent of someone if the, if the USB drive had the company logo on it. If they, oh wow! <laughs> if it was labeled something, especially if it was labeled executives payroll. You know what? Something like that. Oh no! So you're like, that. ooh, I want to see what everybody's right. making. Oh, right. <laughs> it's just—I mean, it's totally human behavior. I mean, it's totally sociology, honestly, and a little That's bit of it. psychology. Like, yeah, we all want to see that stuff. And then, ugh. and I mean, I happen to know that you know the company that you are speaking with is definitely one that is targeted by state-sponsored hackers, and so it was really great that you were able to share with them some of the things they need to look for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I was, I tell you, I was happy to do it. I mean, they were, they were great people and uh, they were very receptive and it, it was, it's, it's always, it's always a pleasure to, to go in and talk to a company and know that at one point I was on the opposite side of the fence mm. against these people. And now, I, you know, I'm, now I'm talking to him and you see these lights click on like, Oh yeah, this is exactly what we're seeing. And, and he right. knows what he's talking about and, and he's, he's providing value all of a sudden. Absolutely. You do provide so much value. And I am familiar with that feeling of, you know, feeling like you're able to share information with people that will help them protect themselves and their companies. And that's certainly fulfilling. In wrapping up this What the Fraud segment, I think, you know, what would you suggest merchants do to try to, I mean, obviously being aware of this is huge. I would say not putting as much weight and value into oh, it's a valid email address, but everything else looks fishy. I would say, you know, knowing that this is happening and not all the time, but that they're definitely talking about it on the forums and sharing this information with each other. So it's spreading quite quickly. Just don't put all your weight in the email address and look at everything else in the order. But if you're using one of those email services, definitely take advantage of the other verification tools that they have for those emails. I think that would be helpful. Is there anything else that you would add on kind of preventing this? No, I think, I think you're hitting it on the head there. I mean, okay. So, so if they're using the real email, I mean, is the behavior the same as it has been on the Mm -hmm. account? Probably not. So it's probably someone that's trying to order some sort of high fraud type item, you know, laptop, phone, something like that. Well, is Is, this account takeover or is it new orders? No, this is new order. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, so like you may not have behavior on the account unless by chance the consumer had already used that email to make a purchase. Right, well, that's what I'm talking about. So if they're, if, you know, if it's a large site, the person may have been on there before. So you have to to compare device, you have to compare um, the history of the orders, things like that. If it's a new order, geez, I mean, you, you just have to be. Be aware of the type of item that's being ordered. Is it a, is it a high risk item? Things like that. I mean, you're probably much more educated on that than I am as to as to how to actually identify something like that. Yeah, I mean, trusting the tools and not putting all the weight in one thing, you know, without giving too much away, like we just talked about. But <laughs> you know, all of these things that we talk about are certainly high level, and every merchant and use case is more specific and there's always more to share on all those things. But yeah, I would say, honestly, I think just knowing that this is possible is probably the best value. And then weighting your rules appropriately, relying on other 
other services like device intelligence or behavior biometrics or two-factor authentication if it makes sense for your business. All of those things and just knowing that that can be spoofed or used can be helpful. I would some I would usually say like email the email address if you're manually reviewing it and say right. that you need them to call in. But if they're sending them thousands of spammed email, well, then that doesn't really help. You know, worst case scenario, you call the bank to verify all the information. They can do yes, no questions or you pick up the phone and call the cardholder. I mean, it's so manual, but that's worst case scenario. If you get down to a crunch, that's what I would say. But trust your systems and work with your providers. I think that would be my biggest takeaway. Okay, so today we decided to discuss fraud that comes from or is placed on mobile devices. We know that we won't be able to cover all of the different fraud tactics, but this will be you know, kind of a good baseline of information of the most common tactics that we've seen performed on mobile devices or that look like they're coming from mobile devices and just that have to do with mobile orders in general. Definitely mobile is booming and probably not going away. I know I myself probably order more items on my phone than I do on my PC these days. Same um, <laughs> Mostly because whenever I'm on my PC, I have a backlog of emails and LinkedIn messages that I work on. And so <laughs> I don't really mess around on my PC anymore, like, you know, internet surfing or anything like that. That's done on my phone. That's me personally, but I think everyone's like that. And there's been some interesting studies that show like the dollar spend per device, which is kind of fascinating. There's higher dollar spend per order on iPads then on phones, and then it usually goes Apple and then Droid phones after that. I don't have the study handy, but I think it's fascinating. I I know that Count has done some work on that in the past. I don't know if they um, have updated that, but I I know that that information's out there. Brett, first, I know you wanted to talk about phone porting, and admittedly, this isn't something that I was super familiar with, so I'm guessing it'll be new to probably a lot of our listeners as well. Sure. So uh, phone porting. Basically what it is, is it's a criminal. He has your phone that's in your pocket shut off and the phone number he has transferred to a phone that he is in control of. And that's called phone porting. Now, why is that important? That's important because today we see more and more companies that are employing this two-factor authentication. Either it's going through email, which is a horrible idea, or the two-factor is coming to the phone. And you have to, you know, like uh, Gmail has that now. So they'll send a message, are you trying to log into your account? And you'll click yes, and they'll let you into the account. So what criminals are doing, they, they understand that. So what they do is, is they say, okay, since we can't crack two-factor, let's go ahead and bypass that altogether and just take control of the mobile device itself. So wow. how easy is that? It's, it's pretty easy. So you can go on these dark nets right now, and you can buy uh, Verizon profiles or AT&T profiles, T-Mobile, anything else like that that has all of the information that you need to port that phone number, to have that phone number that's that the customer actually has, to have their phone shut down and the number transferred over to a phone that you then control. How much is it? It's anywhere from $15 up to $40 per profile, and it's, it's extremely effective. What it does is... is the phone number shut down. The the actual owner of the of the number he doesn't get any type of notification on that whatsoever. He doesn't know the phone's shut off until he notices that hey I'm not getting any text messages. I'm not getting uh, any phone calls. Then he looks at it. He says no service, and then that becomes a huge problem. So how long does that take? It's that gap 
that that time that it takes for the the actual owner to realize what's happening that the criminal walks in and steals money or access to accounts or anything else. It started, oddly enough, with Bitcoin accounts. Nathaniel Popper of the New York Times, he's the first guy that I'd seen it talked about on Darknet, but I hadn't really talked to anybody that was committing it or had committed it. Nathaniel Popper, a writer for the New York Times, he calls me up and he he was doing an article and sure enough, they, they were getting hit on Bitcoin accounts. So uh, Bitcoin had this two-factor, uh, some of the providers had these uh, two-factor authentications that's coming in and the first guy that got really hit with it, uh, I think he lost $200,000 in Bitcoin. Wow. But, uh, yeah, he had, uh, the, the criminal goes over and he ports the phone number. Once the phone number is ported over, he takes control of his Gmail account because it's two-factor authentication at that point. So he takes control of that. Meanwhile, the guy, the real, the, the real account owner, he's seen all this stuff happening in real time, and he can't do anything about it because the phone was controlling everything at that point. And he's wiped out of over $200,000 at that point. That's where it started out. So you see that started out with, with high dollar things. So it was, it was these huge accounts that, that fraudsters were going in and, and porting the phone number. But now it's became so, so ubiquitous that you see it on credit card accounts. You see it on these, these lower level type things that the phone number is easy enough to port over. It costs, you know, $15 for the profile where you look up the information yourself. It takes a little time to do that. Then you buy a prepaid mobile device and have the phone number ported over to that. So, you know, for a total of 30 bucks tops, you're taking control of someone's phone and ripping off all their money, access to accounts, what have you. Wow. So they're able to, when they take over the phone, are they taking over like all the apps, all the everything? Or basically it's like getting a new phone. It's a blank slate, but they it's have like control slate. of their phone number. Okay. Right. So it's a, so it's a blank slate. So what you, so say the guy has purchased or he's trying to take over a Wells Fargo account. All right. So Wells Fargo sends out a text message when you're trying to access the account, you can have it set up to do that. So you would say you would, maybe you don't have the password. You lost your password. Wells Fargo at that point would send the text message to reset to the phone number that's on, on file. You have control of that phone number. You answer it correctly. You then change the password, whatever you want it to. And then you start milking the money out at that point. It's as easy as that. It takes tops. It takes 15 minutes to port the phone number, to close the phone number down and to port it over to to another number that you, to a phone that you control. Okay. That's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so one other question, does it emulate the device ID? Like, will it have the same device ID if it's the same phone number, but a different phone? It wouldn't, no, right? No, it would not. Okay. So <laughs> if a merchant is using device ID, device identification, fingerprinting, whatever your provider calls it, and if the merchant has record of, you know, the previous devices that have been logging in, so if you've been using it for a while and you have record of what that user usually uses to log in, then potentially if they're performing phone porting, then you would be like, huh, same phone number, different device. Absolutely. Or the different. issue comes, though, that with a lot of straight mobile app companies, they're moving towards your phone number is your password. Your exactly. phone number is your identification. Like, I mean, if you think about rideshare companies, meal delivery, the travel, you know, when you stay in other people's houses. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> it's really hard to, like, not. <laughs> I have to, I'm abiding by my own rule. <laughs> there is more than one service for all those things. So I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but they're, you know, starting to move towards your phone number is your password and your identifier. So 
that can be something that, you know, they really should pay attention to and be aware of for sure. Absolutely. So, so you take in the past when you were doing, when you were doing an ATO on an account, when a criminal was eight, was doing an account takeover, he knew that if you controlled the phone, that you controlled the account. So the object was to change the phone number on file. Okay. And you can still do that. But what they're doing now is they're saying, okay, we don't need to change the phone number on file. There's no need to go that route. What we'll do is we'll just keep the phone number and have it transferred to a device that we're in control of. And And are they mostly doing this for pretty large dollar purchases, I would assume, right now? You see, that's what six months ago I would say yes. Now, not so much. Mm -hmm. Now it's it's, it's as simple as taking over a, a Chase credit card or a Citigroup credit card or something like that. So uh, if you have a credit card that has a high available balance, what you can do is you can port the phone number over, and what happens? The company calls. The phone number on the company site has not been changed at all. So they call to verify the order. Everything looks legitimate. Yeah, it goes through. So it, it's that simple right now. Oh, okay. Now, one of the things that one of the things that that can be used that I've noticed to combat that. I was talking to a company that uh, what they do is is they they actually provide a service that looks at the phone number and the provider of the phone number. So a lot of these times mm-hmm. you'll, you'll have somebody that will take over a Verizon account and they'll switch it over to an AT&T or a, oh, a T-Mobile right. or a Boost or something like that. So if they're doing that, you notice the provider has changed and then that's a big flag at that point. That's a good point for sure. Looking at those things. I mean, I think it kind of goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about with emails, right? Being aware of this stuff is half the battle. Absolutely. Because if we assume that because the phone number verifies with public, you know, verifiable information because it verifies with the bank that it's good. But now we just need to be aware of the fact that this is possible. Not that everyone's doing it, but that it's possible. And I know that a lot of service providers listen to us as well. I've definitely received a lot of notes of positive feedback that they're enjoying the training and the information as well. And I think this is really good for you guys to know too, because you can start to address it more in your tools and in your services. And, you know, being aware of it is half the battle and definitely, If you want even more details about it, definitely talk to Brett and, you know, even if it's a short-term consulting engagement, he is a wealth of information, as you can tell, for even an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And understand that this thing is not going anywhere. You've got phone companies that are, a lot of it is KBA questions, so knowledge-based authentication questions. It's easy enough to find out the answers to those. If it's a uh, PIN number or a secret password, a couple couple of providers or cell phone providers have those. It's easy enough to fish that data or simply to say, I forgot what my pen was. So then what do they do? They ask KBA questions, <laughs> which right. you have the answers to, and then they change the pen to whatever you want it to. Well, um, and then once they change it to their device and it's shut off on the user's side, then do they call back? They don't know the the user's real provider, right? Because if they did, then they'd use them. So right. how is the user getting their phone back do they have to call their service provider to be like why do i not have service or well, in, how is in the, in the case of the uh, the guy that got hit with bitcoin is this was one of the uh, the first cases of this of this phone porting that really went public but he was t- in the article he's telling the story of hey you know i had trouble convincing verizon that i was the actual customer huh. and meanwhile while i'm trying to convince them to shut the phone down and everything else i'm literally seeing my bitcoin balance go to zero uh so that that's exactly what's happening. It's that gap that it takes to fix the problem right. that the criminal walks in and steals money out of, or money or product or access or whatever out of the account. 
Oh my goodness. Well, and I mean, at the same time, that's the same kind of thing that happens on credit cards as well when, Absolutely. when credit cards are ATO'd. So it's kind of like phone ATO, except for the fact that they're like taking control of it for a different purpose. It's not necessarily Absolutely. account takeover to make a purchase with the phone provider. It's to do that. But I mean, it's a really big hassle to change it back over, I would imagine. I mean, it's kind of a hassle to change it over when you change service providers, you know. And just thinking about it with all the phone wars that are going on with cell phone providers, especially in the States, and I'm sure it's similar, you know, elsewhere, it's so common porting over your phone to another provider. Absolutely. That and it- they don't really think about it yet. I mean, if you're working for a phone provider, I would say think about this. Oh, think it, about how you can prevent it and what you can do and work with your customer service department to put more things in place. You know, maybe right. like stronger knowledge base questions that aren't publicly available or, you know, two factor authentication or whatever it is, you know, putting other barriers in place. Because if you put more barriers in place for them to be able to do that, it'll be easy for the true customers to know that information and deal with it. More and more American consumers are getting more used to privacy questions and entering their CVV and their AVS and a little bit extra security, certainly not as well as customers in the EU and elsewhere. Um, (laughs) I really am jealous of that, that they have consumers that are a lot more privacy focused and are okay going through a few hoops. But, you know, I know that you have to balance customer service and conversion rates and, you know, customer satisfaction, but selecting something, and there's certainly a few things that are popping to my mind, but selecting things that will put some barriers in place that will help, you know, like unique knowledge-based questions or other things. The problem I hate with knowledge-based questions is just that a lot of them correlate to surveys that get thrown around on social media. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) You know, they are. A KBA question, it's useless. It really is. I, I, I despise the entire idea of it. Yeah, but what's the alternative? I mean, in in this situation, there's there's definitely definitely (laughs) other alternatives in other, you know, for online commerce. But when you're talking about porting over your phone or calling your bank for a situation or something like that, like I know my bank just recently asked me for a code word. And so now whenever I call them, I have to give them a code word. Right. And it's one that I certainly think that nobody would ever think of, (laughs) you know, but I I don't know. I mean, I, I think I was very clever, but, and no, I will not be sharing that on this. (laughs) (laughs) It would be useless, but no, it's just like, it's, you know, they're trying you know, so that was instead of all the knowledge based questions, because my bank is super security focused. And that's a sure. big reason why I use them. They even look at, you know, online purchases. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's burned me a couple times where I have to be like, No, I, I made that purchase. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I spent almost $200 on a food delivery app. <laughs> I had company and didn't want to cook. <laughs> yeah, that's me. A little I did bit that. shameful. Like, oh, don't judge me for my misuse of finances. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I really appreciate that about them. And that's why I'm, you know, so loyal to them. And not a lot of companies do that. But they switch to code words instead of knowledge-based questions because they know that those aren't right. I mean, no, absolutely. but it's only as strong as the consumer makes it. So it's still, you know, a 
Gee, and, you, know, what, you what, know, don't make it the name of your street or your child's <laughs> name, for God's sake. But, you know, one of the things is, is you, you look at, like, this phone porting that's going on here, okay? And, and I talk about this to companies and everything, but you, a, a company needs to understand that cybercrime happens because it's not a failure of just one system. It's a failure of right. multiple systems which are chained together. And sometimes those mm -hmm. systems are out of the control of the target company, like this phone porting. Right. So uh, you can't control that the criminal's porting the phone number before he comes to your bank or your website and tries to order something. So the only thing you can control is what's within your immediate grasp. And it's important to be aware of these crimes and to understand that they can happen. And I think really, like you said earlier, if you just raise the awareness, if you make people aware that this is happening, that goes a long way to circumventing the crime. Yeah, I think it's half the battle. And, you know, with I think that the top tools for this would be device ID for sure. You know, granted, you have to have record of the good customer logging in. So for new purchases that wouldn't really help but you know looking at all the other factors and the behavior and I think too that behavior biometrics would do really well there and I think I'll probably deep dive in it a little bit more once we get through a few more tactics I know we spent a lot of time on this but I think it's something that I mean I certainly didn't know about like I said and so I think it's super important that we do spend a little bit of time on it to help everyone understand it a little bit better absolutely Another thing that I definitely have been hearing for the last couple of years for sure is merchants seeing fraudsters using mobile emulators. And you probably know even more about this than I do, but from you know a basic definition, it's being able to make it appear like the order is occurring on a mobile device when it's actually occurring on the PC. And there's several reasons for that. I mean, it really comes down to the same thing we always say. They're trying to look more legitimate. And they know that there's more mobile orders. And also, I'm going to be sharing some facts soon, you guys, that I really hope <laughs> help people change direction because it's something I've been saying for three or four years. But most merchants are a big, maybe not most, but a big chunk of merchants do not even have the ability to differentiate a mobile order from a PC order. Or looking at them differently at all. That's an even you know, lower percentage or higher percentage, actually, that doesn't look at them differently. And behavior is different. And the information that you can get from the devices is certainly a lot different. There's a lot more information you can get on mobile devices. But um, if they're using an emulator, it's going to look like it's on a mobile device. And just basically be more tricky. I mean, essentially, I think that's really what it is, trying to make it look more legitimate. There's a lot of ways that mobile emulators are used, both in mobile web browser transactions as well as in apps. Brett, what are some of the ways that you've seen mobile emulators used? So, so there's a couple of products that uh, that are out that actually do this automatically for fraudsters. Uh, one of them is FraudFox. The other is AntiDetect. So you mm -hmm. can use these on a, on a desktop or a laptop computer and... and Say you're running Windows 10, you're you're using the Chrome browser on Windows 10 or something like that. But if you, if you fire up AntiDetect, you can emulate not only the the browser but the the device type as well. So you can you can emulate the uh, the, the browser version. The if you're using a, a laptop, you can have it look like it's an iPad or an Android device or anything else like that. The reason what being is exactly like you said. It makes it look more legitimate at that point. Fraudsters know that historically. 
on mobile devices, fraud isn't as high. So if they can come right. in looking like it's a mobile device, the chances of it being fraud as far as the merchant is concerned isn't as high as it's coming in from a laptop. So it lowers that overall fraud score. That's why they're doing that. What's interesting is, is we're seeing that a lot of the fraudsters are kind of migrating away from the use of mobile emulators because the actual mobile devices are pretty cheap. So you can... Mm. So you can go, uh, if you were talking to me last year, I would say the mobile device of choice was an Apple phone because it, it, it worked to defeat device fingerprinting and things like that. That has changed. It's done a 180 now. So the, the device of choice for fraudsters right now is an Android device that they've rooted, they've taken control of, and they've changed the uh, the serial number, the IMEI of the phone number. They've changed it to something else, and they've installed the app on there for whatever company they're trying to hit. If it's got an app, they do that. Uh, why? Because... The mobile device, especially with an app attached, it's not really a, a target for fraud as far as merchants are concerned. So that's where mm. fraudsters go is there. Of course, a lot of security companies, the, the anti-fraud products, they don't have the same type of APIs for the mobile app as they do for the desktop app. So I would say <laughs> that's not entirely true. I can hear several of them like yelling at Oh, I, I know they're screaming. I know some of them do, but some of them don't either. <laughs> well, but you bring up a good point, right? So... Some of the information I'll share in a couple minutes is from the sixth annual uh, mobile fraud study with CNP and Count. And one of the things they talk about is just how many merchants have, I think they use the word, are complacent with their tools. And are, I say this all the time, especially when I'm at conferences and working with clients, I see too many companies fighting today's fraud with yesterday's tools. There are some exceptional new products that have really high level SDKs and there's actually more device information on mobile devices than on PCs available if you have the right tools but you need to invest in them because this I mean mobile fraud's not going away it's increasing rapidly and you're either going to be in front of the other people running from the bear or you're going to be you know behind behind them and I see a lot of companies being behind them already. And I also see I've worked with a couple companies that had never been in the CNP business before. They'd all been, you know, card present, either uh, quick service restaurants or traditional retailers. And from a sales strategy, it makes absolute sense to go that route, as they should. But right. they were not prepared for the level of fraud that would come their way. And I think I mentioned it before on a previous podcast that at the 2017 CMP, I was blown away by how many really well-known restaurant chains, either quick service restaurant or full service restaurant, were attending our conference. And it was because they have mobile apps now, either for gift cards or for straight purchases and ordering. And they're being used for card testing or triangulation or, you know, depending on which mobile initiative they have. And I have seen companies just lose millions of dollars a month, significant amounts. It's so important that if you are planning a CMP strategy to have something in place specifically for mobile and have a tool that matches what your company has. If you're a company that doesn't have a subject matter expert in fraud and you don't have somebody who knows how to write rules and is able to manual review, then, you know, the linear rules models of some of the tools that have been around for a long time 
may not be the best option for you. Instead, you may want to look at a hybrid of machine learning and some rules, some supplemental rules that would be helpful and specific to your business. You know, you may want to look at or if you already have one of those legacy tools and it's going to be too difficult to implement a new tool that does have these services, then add some layers, add some layers of device identification or behavior biometrics or two-factor authentication if it makes sense for your business. I definitely don't think it's, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense for everyone. I think it depends on dollar size. It depends on customer loyalty. If, you know, you're the only company that they can get that product from or that service from, you'll definitely see on like the home rental sites, their level of verification is deep. And it's because they know that they're the only ones or one of the only ones and they have a lot of loyalty that, and they also hope that most consumers understand that if you're going to be staying in a stranger's house, they want to make sure that they know who you are. Um, <laughs> the platform wants to know who you are. So you may have to take a picture of your government ID, for example. So the layers of identification and the asks of the consumer should really vary based on your tool. But I think that these days, if you're a company that has a pretty strong mobile initiative, either strong mobile web browser traffic or an app, Working with a company with SDK would be really, you know, helpful because you're able to pull so much more information from the device. One of the things that I, that I so a mobile device, as you said, it has a ton of information available. All right. But uh, my thing is, is that if a company, and I think you said this, basically said the same thing, if a company's not looking at the information, it doesn't matter. Well, that's true too. Yeah. You need to have a way to digest it and to study it and all that. I mean, it really is crazy. You guys, I joke sometimes with people and I am working with a new client. That's not as they just, they haven't been in, in CMP fraud that long. And I was talking about all the different information that's available on mobile and they started to get really like kind of creeped out. And I said, there's a lot of things that as a consumer scares me to death. As somebody who's a major fraud nerd, I get really excited about, (laughs) you know, some of that information that they have is, you know, geolocation, your operating system information. Um, They're able to detect malware or GPS spoofing emulators. Some of the behavior biometrics companies can actually know how you're holding the phone, how you're entering the password. They know exactly how that user interacts with their device and records all of that information. And one of the things they do in the demo is they hand over their device and their password to their dummy account and they say, log in to my account. So you're using their device and their password but it still doesn't match from a behavior biometric standpoint because we all type things differently with a different beat or we hold the phone differently or we use our thumb and the other person uses their index finger. I mean, to my knowledge, there's no work around that stuff. But you do have to not only be working with a company that provides that information, but also with a company that is able to help you integrate that information to track or you set parameters and rules around those so that they're automated. I love behavioral biometrics. Uh, my problem is, is that at what point do you get enough information so that you can really narrow down that margin of error for the biometrics? Well, and the one company that I'm thinking of, and I know that there are several, but there's one that I'm more familiar with than anyone else. And they work with some of, I mean, they work with the top, like most of the top I would say 10 online retailers, the majority of them. 
they actually have a consortium of data. So it's not just that they're studying the behavior of that user on that. So they combine the device, the user, and the way that they, you know, interact with it. And then the third, well, actually, so there's three things. They combine the device, the user behavior, and then the consortium of data. So they're not just looking at how that consumer logged into your system. They're looking into how that consumer logged in on all the different companies that they work with, as well right. as they know which devices and which of all those which data is, which is, is what not it would good. Take. It, it would take right. something like that. I, and the reason I bring that up, I was I was in Paris and I was talking to a bank there. A couple of people work for a bank and they're they're implementing behavioral biometrics. Now they do not have this consortium of businesses. Mm -hmm. so, and right. my thing, my thing was, is, and they knew the problem even before I said it, I was like, okay, mm -hmm. how do you, how do you verify that it's that actual person? If the person's only logging into your site once every six months or right. three months or what have you. So what they were working on is they were trying to, they were developing an app and they were hoping either to run the app constantly in the background or to, to have the app with enough extra features that the person mm. would constantly check into the app all the time. Right. Uh, but the consortium, oh like you mentioned, I think that's great. Well, yeah. I, you just reminded me of another thing. I'll watch it a second. But, I mean, it shares that information across it, but it's all anonymous and not shared. So it's not like, oh, Merchant X saw this. It's all behind the scenes and all very cryptic. And I've heard nothing but praise for the company that I'm thinking of. And I know that there are a couple others. You know, the other thing about it is that it's pre-purchase, it's pre-transaction, which it's at the time of the login. So this will only work if you have accounts that people are logging into with username and password. But, right. you know, you can set parameters where like, hey, if they are at 60% verified, you can send two-factor auth or you can, you know, or you can do new CAPTCHA to see if it's a, you know, well, they'll be able to detect if it's a bot. But, they were, I mean, the statistics of the merchants that I know of, especially the really big ones that were just drowning in fraud and then this cut down so much is so good. And the fact that it's pre-purchase is great because then you're not mucking up your decline ratio. They're so does, getting does rid of those people before down? you're even entering the payment information. Right. Does it slow the site, the merchant site down any at all or not? No, no, it That's is nice. like milliseconds. It's, I, I'm obviously very impressed with it. I mean, I will say that, it has traditionally been pretty expensive, so it's not something that I recommend to everyone. I know that they're working on the price structure, and I know that the other companies that offer similar services are as well. But that would be the downside is the, you know, the cost or something like that can be really high. But man, if you're experiencing a lot of bot traffic or you're seeing emulators or foam porting, then, you know, it, it might be worth it. Something that you just reminded me of, and I should track down the business card. <laughs> I spoke at a conference with a major rideshare company last fall and there was a venture capitalist that was representing a new technology that he was invested in and wanted my you know, opinion on it. And I was fascinated by it. And I wonder what you think. I don't know if it's available or not, but I, I didn't sign an NDA or anything. So I don't think it's, you know, <laughs> private information. I'm like thinking about it like, hmm. But they're basically, they deal with images on mobile devices. So sure. basically, like if a user takes a picture of their face for facial recognition, interacting with your app, then they actually, they aren't necessarily running that facial recognition against another picture they have in their database or social media or whatever. They're actually searching that phone 
for pictures of that person, like selfies and family pictures and stuff, just or even to see if they have pictures on their phone. Because it's a if it's a fraudster or a mobile emulator, they're not going to have pictures of the cardholder on their phone. Right. They also have technology to determine fatigue, like for truck drivers or rideshare drivers that are driving ridiculous hours. They are working with some companies that will require the driver to take a picture of their face every hour, and they can actually indicate if they're too tired to drive or not. I found that fascinating. That doesn't yeah. really have anything to do with fraud, but no, no, I, I like the idea. <laughs> I like the idea of searching the phone for pictures, but I got to be honest with you, I don't have any pictures on my phone. <laughs> I have pictures of you on my phone, which is bizarre. <laughs> I mean, I, I may snap a shot, but I'll transfer it to my hard drive oh. on my laptop. After <laughs> I'm that. like, I think I have like three thousand two hundred pictures on my phone right oh, now. Yeah. No, no, nothing here. <laughs> Not a thing here. <laughs> so I guess I'm that outlier. That right. Well, but you're also a bad guy, right? Or former bad guy. Oh, so see, there it goes. There it goes. There it goes. Ah, there bringing it full circle. Just, just had to get it in there. You're yeah. The other things I would say, too, though, that I see with companies are very app specific. There's definitely been... I don't know what it's called. There's probably a term for it, but there's one specifically that has done a couple presentations at industry conferences and people who have attended those conferences will know exactly what I'm talking about. They'll actually show pictures of warehouses that they have uncovered working with law enforcement, especially in other countries, Asian countries specifically for this mobile app. But they're like these big giant black boxes that have tons of different SIM cards in them. Sure. And they're able to spoof geolocation pretty accurately. So if they're advertising half price of your app service and your app service relies on geolocation, whether it's food delivery or rideshare or there's you know several other instances too, then they're able to offer that service for half price you know, on social media and things. That user can say, I'm on the corner of third and pike in seattle and that sim card can be in china and they can spoof that location to the point where the meal delivery driver or the rideshare company will pick them up and think that they're driving with them and that's been something i mean that's really i think only specific to companies that are very app and geolocation specific but well that specific action, but they can use these, you know, black boxes for lack of a better word to spoof anything. Oh no, absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that's common to, to see that type of thing. It, what's funny is it boils down to for a fraudster or a network of fraudsters, is it cheaper to use human labor or is it cheaper to use like the black box with the SIM cards oh. in it? So wow. it, it, it's all a cost effectiveness at that point. Oh, um, so they're doing cost benefit analysis as absolutely. well. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so you can you can have you can have that's that's the whole point of botnets, right? Is it cheaper to run a botnet right. to do these to do these credential stuffings, or is it is it cheaper to have humans actually do it? And you find out it's cheaper to run botnets at that point for rideshare services. And I, I've re, I've read articles on both both uh, a warehouse of humans actually doing it and this big black box of SIM cards. <laughs> so right. it's like all right. <laughs> so which well, which and I will effective. say, I mean, I. I spoke with one of them. I'm on stage last year, and like I said, and they are extremely sophisticated and getting better and better at detecting all of those things and investigating those and finding out how the fraud's happening on their app, either right. through 
darknet forums or working with investigators and having them track down, you know, what it is. And and that knowledge helps them be able to better prevent it. That's the same reason why I preach so often about looking at your chargeback data to figure out what you're missing and how to prevent all of that. Absolutely. And, and you know, even with the, I know the rideshare company you're talking about, but you know, what was interesting is, is that, yeah, now, now they are absolutely great on security, but when they first started, not so much. They well, were, they were I know open. the person that they that they hired to fix it, and I have a lot of respect for him. And he's been there since, you know, when it blew up. <laughs> there you go. And at, at one point on these darknet forums, I mean, they were there. There were entire sub forums dedicated to that rideshare service. Wow. Well, and there are definitely other ways to that they have experience fraud as well that was one that i hadn't been as familiar with before but you know they'll even have drivers pick up a i mean it's as simple as picking up a burner phone and creating an account and then that's it you know picking up that burner phone and you know creating money laundering essentially right any service that is a platform for taking money and giving money to other people whether it's marketplace or any of those things are very open to money laundering schemes and they know that and they're really good at, at catching those, but it's continual cat and mouse for sure. Right. Absolutely. One other thing I was just going to mention is some of the tools. I mean, I've kind of mentioned them a little bit, but in detecting mobile fraud, you know, they really do depend on your business model and your customer engagement, like I said, but I just wanted to recap it. So a case management system that has deep experience in mobile transactions. Honestly, I would say in mobile transactions that are like your company, like your company has, because there can be providers that are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have merchants with mobile, but they're completely different. They're different dollar size, different customer behavior, all different things. I mean, think of all the different ways that people interact with their phones and and their credit cards together, right? Their purchases and their behavior. The way that you fight fraud for a quick service restaurant is going to be significantly different than the way that you fight mobile fraud for retail, for example. And so, yeah, knowing that your case management system, verifying that they have experience with that and if it's linear, you know, they're setting rules that are specific to your business model. Unfortunately, I've worked with a merchant recently that had rules that were more specific to a retailer than the vertical that they were in. And, you know, gaming is also super, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that in a future episode soon. Cause we have a pretty awesome interview coming up, but yes, um, on, on gaming fraud, but they definitely have very different mobile fraud interactions and also consumer interactions. And so, you know, being able to have the right rules for your business set, or if it's machine learning, that's a little bit easier because it will learn the fraud specific to your vertical. But, you know, you definitely can make do with what you have. I certainly don't want, you know, I think it's a really good practice to RFP every two years. And I've said that many times, if nothing else, but to verify that you have the right tool for your business every time. But, you know, if you don't, then that's, you know, that's up to you guys. That's just kind of what I would say. But fraud's just changing so much. Device fingerprinting and device intelligence, uh, mobile geolocation, behavior biometrics, two-factor authentication, government-issued identification verification is definitely something that does occur. But for the right companies, right? It wouldn't make sense if you were ordering, you know, food and they were like, take a picture of your driver's license. You'd go, eh, I'll use your competitor. <laughs> right. But I mean, if you are doing like a car sharing service, like that's really big in the Seattle metro area, you know, where you're driving 
it's like essentially a micro rental car situation. So that's different than rideshare. That's where that would make sense. You know, obviously staying in other people's homes makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, you guys know what is going to work and what's not going to work with your customers. <laughs> Brett, do you have anything else to add on, on the prevention side? No, I, I think you've got some good points there. I, I, I like the idea of biometrics. I love that. Uh, I love the two-factor authentication as long as it's not two-factor through email. That's mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely useless. Well, uh, but if they're phone porting, I mean, two-factor through text isn't really going to work either right. now, but right? If they're, if they're phone porting, they you can bet they've already taken over the email, email address because that's easy right. enough because they're going to text the phone number and the fraudster controls the phone number. So then does that make, I mean, do both of those things make two-factor authentication obsolete or is it still working in some functions? You know, just don't well, bank on it. It depends on how the two factor is employed. What's interesting is is Google did that experiment where they used the security key, mm, and that right. that stopped that effectively stopped all phishing attacks, one hundred percent of them. That is a proper form of two factor authentication. The phone's a proper form too, except when when a thief takes over <laughs> the phone. <laughs> For people that don't use Google, can you explain the security key really yeah. Sure. So so two factor authentication is what it means is it is something you have and something you know. Right. So so when you're doing that through email you don't you you may you may think you have an email address, but you don't. It, it's the company that's providing it that has mm-hmm. the email address. And they simply let you use it. Mm-hmm. So you have a phone that is something you have, and then the something you know would be the password, the PIN number, something like that. Right? right. The problem is, is that when that's taken over, then you no longer have the phone. Someone else does. Mm-hmm. What Google did to to really take care of everything is they came up with a USB key mm-hmm. that they issued they they issued one to every single Google employee so that efficient when, when efficient email was sent in in order for the fraudster to use a password that was acquired or anything else like that they had to have that USB key which they it was impossible for them to get ah uh, so almost like oh gosh what are those called I used to have them all the time for a few of my emails like the fob that would change numbers all right. the time the dongle or anything else like yes that. all right so it's something you have and something you know. So the fraudster may know the passwords, but right. without the key, there's no no way in the world they can ever log in. All right? And that that's extremely right. effective. But that and was that, for emails, for phishing, which makes total sense. I mean, for employees, for phishing, but right. like, what about and the rest of us? Yeah, it doesn't do anything at all if you've got a mobile device. You can't really plug in a key in a mobile device most of the time. Right. Um, so the problem is, is, is what do you do about that? And I think that you raise awareness you you as you said you, it's it's a combination of all these anti-fraud things that are put together uh, you can't just anymore rely solely on two-factor authentication you have to do all this other stuff like 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 geolocation that's easy enough to spoof that doesn't right. mean you shouldn't look for it but it means that you that's not the only thing you should look for you have to look for all these things together right i preach that so much that it should be your decision should be holistic on all of the pieces of data that you get from the various service providers you have, as well as the information that you have yourself, you know, customer history and device history. I mean, I guess that's using a provider, but I mean, all those things or, you know, going out and verifying things with uh, um, public data records, you know, verification, but also maybe contacting the customer if it's high dollar and if you have manual review. Just knowing that none of these things is... 
my least favorite phrase in our industry, a silver bullet. (laughs) (laughs) None of them are, but they together, they tell a story. And it's the same thing I'd say about AVS and CVV. They're very important to get, but I never recommend making a hard yes or no decision on just that factor. And knowing that all of these things are flawed, but they still are helpful, I think helps paint the picture. And we certainly aren't trying to say that this is the fall of any providers or anything. This is actually, all of this is because we've been doing a really good job. There are times when I would love to go back to the easy fraud we had 10 years ago, <laughs> but it it's very, it's validating that we're, you know, we're doing things in the right direction. And it always go to me, it always goes back to my analogy of, you know, fighting zombies or dragons and we're fighting fraud zombies. They're going to morph and they're going to change and they're going to adapt and they're going to be immune to our tools. But those combination of tools are important. I never recommend using more than, you know, a few, like I know of one very popular online gaming company that had so much fraud at one time that they literally, I think, used every single provider known to man. And it actually created a lot of false positives. We all kind of joked with them about it, like, oh, it must be nice to have a big budget like that. But <laughs> they eventually slimmed it down to, I think, like th- a strong three or four. But it was just like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, just like, you know, they that was their main priority was risk. And so they literally deployed everything I, that you could think of. And to me, it was kind of comical, but it was also an interesting study. So I know this is probably a little bit of a longer episode than normal, but obviously, I mean, we probably could talk about this even longer and and we'll probably start doing extension episodes on these topics at a later date and know that a lot of the information that we are providing off the top of our head is mostly iceberg information. I mean, we certainly have a lot more detail, but we know that we have a broad audience, so we want to take you along for all of it. The one thing that was super important to me to add was some information that came from that mobile fraud survey that I told you about. And here's the thing. I've been preaching this for a long time and obviously not everybody is listening. And I mean, I also don't have reached to everyone yet, but it is (laughs) so important to be able to detect mobile orders and PC orders. Brett already said that, but oh my gosh, I mean, it's crazy. And Here's some high-level facts from the survey, and I just kind of, you know, wanted to provide the supplemental information because I think it's really important and know that there's a lot more deep dives into verticals and the revenue of merchants to really be able to benchmark yourself against the survey, but here we go. So nearly one in five merchants earn more than half of their revenue in the mobile sales channel today. I have no doubt that that's going to continue to grow. It has been growing and it will. So 20% of online companies earn more than half of their revenue just in mobile. So it's important and probably not going away. Just 17% of merchants surveyed apply separate fraud strategies to desktop and mobile e-commerce channels. Honestly, it you know, the lack of focus on securing mobile transactions is further represented in that only 50% believe it's important to have special tools and to manage the mobile channel today. And what's weird is that 75% of merchants two years ago thought that it was really important to have a specialized fraud strategy. So, you know, it could be that they just surveyed different merchants this year, but it could also be that they don't really understand the importance. And I think that Brett, you really, you know, explained it, but 
to me, it comes down to a couple of factors. One is there is vastly a lot more data about the device on a mobile device. And if you're not capitalizing on that, then you're missing out on information that can help you make a, a really fine-tuned decision. Also, consumer behavior and fraudster behavior is different on mobile channels. What they're purchasing might be different, right? You might have different services through your app than you do online. Maybe you have, you know, top up on your gift cards or, you know, location services or whatever it is. And so it's it's just really important to not only be able to decipher if it's what channel that sales coming through. And honestly, if you can't get down to type a device like, you know, Apple iOS, Droid, uh, iPad, other type of tablet, like that's okay. I mean, that's really good information to have and it's helpful. But honestly, I'd say bare minimum, just no mobile or PC like the source. And the other thing I would say is that at least for a long time, I worked with several really large merchants that the IP address on the mobile device was coming in as the company's IP address. Oh, geez. Yeah. So oh, they didn't geez. have device ID, but they had IP, you know, geolocation, but they weren't gathering that because, you know, phone IP is not very reliable. Right. And so they're just every single mobile order would have the same IP. Now, I'll say two things about it. The good thing about that is that I explained to the merchant, well, at least you have a way to decipher mobile and PC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always looking on the bright side. But, I mean, the other side is you're missing out on all of that rich device information on the mobile device that can help you tell a story. Continuing on, this is the thing that just, like, killed me. The share of merchants who are unable to recognize when a transaction is coming from a mobile device increased for the first time in history of the survey. So it used to be that 14% of, last year, 14% of merchants were unable to recognize if it was mobile or PC. This year, it was 27 However, higher revenue merchants, so the big ones, know that it's most important to fight mobile fraud differently than PC fraud. So I always say kind of follow the leader. A lot of these bigger companies, I've been so fortunate to work with them or at least have them explain to me what's working and what's not working and how they do things. And yeah, you're not going to have all the resources they have, but if they're doing something like this, if they're seeing the value and having a different strategy for mobile versus PC, maybe that should tell you something. I say the same thing about having a payments program, but that's a whole other, a whole <laughs> other episode. <laughs> I'm about to speak at a, at a big payments uh, conference this week. So that's uh, <laughs> part of why that's on the brain, but it's also something that I, I talk often about. A couple more facts. So about 11% of surveyed merchants do not apply any fraud prevention tools or techniques in the mobile channel. 11%. While 83% use two or more tools and two thirds of merchants use three or more. However, I would say that when they're selecting the tools, ADS and CVV were considered tools. Those don't really provide adequate fraud protection by themselves, as you know, Brett, because the price difference of buying a credit card with no CVV and ABS and one with it is pretty insignificant, correct? Yeah, it, yeah absolutely. <laughs> CBV is useless. Uh, CBV helps counter kids that are using their moms and dads credit cards. That's about it. However, 
this is a sidebar, but I feel it important to say, CVV actually has another use that doesn't have anything to do with fraud, but is equally as important to merchants. I may have already said this before because I tell this story pretty often and sometimes it's hard for me to remember. Was it on the podcast? Was it at a conference? Was it with a client? But I knew a large ticketing marketplace that their sales and you know conversion teams were saying that they should not and could not use CVV. And they just needed to deploy any tool they could to stop an influx of fraud at the time. And so they were able to do an A-B test of, you know, randomly half of their transactions were asked for CVV and half were not. The conversion rate really didn't change at all. So it didn't stop any good customers from logging in. And it was added information to protect them from fraud. And it's just, you know, one of many factors. But the kicker was they saw a top line increase of their sales by 3%. And this is like a huge company. 3% mm. is a lot for them. And the reason is the more information you provide banks in a transaction, the more likely they are to approve the transaction. Ah, gotcha. So... I would say that, yes, CVV from a fraud protection standpoint, when you're using it by itself or as a strong indicator, probably doesn't have a lot of value these days. But if you would like to continue to receive a paycheck and have as much sales <laughs> as possible and have your shares increase, I think that it's really important, especially for digital goods merchants, for those MCC codes that are in digital services and are not providing physical goods or for the ones that are kind of unknown to smaller banks or who are in risky verticals like online gaming or travel. It's important because it can actually help increase your sales and your authorization rate. So fun little sidebar there. I don't know how fun it was, but I <laughs> <laughs> thought it was important to counteract that. But I mean, you're absolutely right that it's, I wouldn't say worthless, but it certainly is not <laughs> as helpful as it was five or six years ago. <laughs> I'm always more cautious. <laughs> and then lastly, merchants are more concerned about the ease of use for their mobile device and their mobile channel and their you know mobile app in general than managing security and fraud risk. Maintaining ease of use is also more likely to be cited as a major challenge than being able to detect fraud and addressing mobile security concerns. So, and you're always having to toe that line, right, between bringing in the right sales but stopping the bad sales. And we know that your company's initiatives are almost always focused on increasing those top line sales and getting more uh, consumers engaged with your app and your mobile channel and getting them on board and not having a lot of friction. But fraudsters love when you're only focused on not having a lot of friction. So find ways that you can verify cardholder information automatically or manually and do all those things without impacting the customer and if you are impacting the customer that's minimal and that you you know are making it as seamless as possible so that's i mean i know that that's a lot of like facts and there's actually a lot more um in that survey and it just came out about a month ago so definitely if you're you know especially if you're wanting to present something to upper management to say hey we need to have a different strategy look the top guys are doing this this is why this is so important definitely you know look up that survey for the information i believe it's on cardnotpresent.com's website as well as on counts as well so i think you know it's been a long episode but i really feel like we covered a lot of topics on mobile do you have anything to add brett as we wrap up 
You know, I really can't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain has been unloaded. <laughs> it's, like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's empty now. <laughs> I mean, for full disclosure, guys, it's like 930 at night. <laughs> We're doing this kind of late, but God bless Brett for being flexible around my crazy travel schedule this oh, week. I mean, you're flexible around mine all the time, <laughs> so I appreciate this it. This is true. You travel more than I do, uh, <laughs> but this is my fourth time coming to the East Coast in three months. So yeah, That's a long trip. <laughs> a lot of jet lag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So honestly, in my head, it's six. Honestly, my computer still says it's six thirty. So, it's not bad yet. I've only this is only my second night, but I'm about to be at Payments Ed Forum in Boston, which obviously our, our listeners won't be able to attend this year. But I definitely recommend looking them up next year. They're actually going to be in San Francisco, same as CNP, but CNP's in May and Payments Ed is in August every year. And I'd say they're about 75% focused on payments and 25% focused on fraud, but they do a great job and they're all merchant volunteer led from the education to everything. And they're very education networking focused. And I always believe in being a part of their event and I appreciate them inviting me and I'm actually speaking in two sessions back to back. That just was coincidence, but they, you know, payments at NCMP just complement each other so well. So, you know, when you're planning your travel schedule next year for our listeners, you know, you can plan on seeing half of San Francisco in May and the other half in August. Are they recording your presentations or not? I don't believe they are. They're a little longer than your eight minute TED talk. I don't know if I'd put you I was hoping I would get to listen to one. Well, one of the presentations I'm doing is on the CMP fraud operations survey that I was able to help architect, which I think is just super important to help drive fraud managers in making decisions on everything from KPIs to manual review rates and false positive rates and all kinds of stuff. And I believe the recording of the webinar that I did a few months ago is available on cardnotpresent.com's website. So that's available. And then the other session I'm talking about is on my favorite topic. Can you guess what it is? On your favorite topic. Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Chargebacks. That's right. Damn it. Yeah, I, I was like, Sometimes you know, I know I'll this tell answer. my really funny charging story about when I was really looped up on painkillers in a hospital and demanded a chargeback. <laughs> my best friend still does not let me forget that. It was like I 10 years ago. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to charge this S back. Apparently, in my doped up state, I thought that charging something back would erase. The fact that I had broken my leg in five places, <laughs> slipping on ice. And my best friend still does not let me live that down. And I'm like, oh, I guess I was destined to be a fraud nerd. And that was when I still worked for the payment processor like 10 years ago. Actually, my ankleversary was 12 years ago. <laughs> so I call it because I broke my ankle. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a long time ago. But uh, that's how much I love them. And I'm talking about them at Payments Ed on an awesome panel with Ethica and Ancestry.com. And we're talking about compelling evidence tactics. So I'll be sure to share some of that on a future episode because I always learn stuff when I present too from questions and from everything. And I also am looking forward to nerding out in several of the sessions. So I know that this is past tense now when we release it, but if there's two conferences I recommend in the U.S., those are them for fraud and payments professionals. So totally just 
a plug to plug it, not because anyone's incentivizing us to do it, but (laughs) they have not paid for an advertisement. But I do just strongly believe in education and networking and learning from your peers. And there's a lot of big merchants that attend this as well as smaller ones. And it just creates a really great environment, just like we strive to do at CMP too. There you go. All right. So that's it for today's episode. We want to thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. We've got so many of these topics to cover to help protect you and your business from fraud. So please subscribe to Online Fraudcast to be alerted when a new episode is available. And because we're new, please tell your friends. Rate and review where you can to help others learn about these topics as well. And we want to hear what you love so far about the podcast and how we can improve and what topics you want to hear us discuss. We really do enjoy it. I know I can speak for myself when I say that I know my LinkedIn is on a backlog because I really like to give thoughtful responses, but know that I read them and really appreciate them. And and Brett does too. And we take them to heart and put any feedback into future episodes. It's important to us. You can also find the online broadcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or find us individually on LinkedIn. Or you can always email us at info at onlinefrogcast.com. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.